Amen. It is a blessing to know that we are under the blood of Jesus Christ, to know that he has redeemed us, that he has saved us. I will give you a warning here. I'm doing something a little bit different this morning. I have never preached from a tablet before, and I am going to do so this morning. At least I'm going to try to do so. I have been told that when Pastor Wiggins first tried to do this, he was in the middle of a sermon and his tablet just shut off right in the middle of it. So I'm hopeful that that does not happen this morning, but um, no promises. We'll see how things work out this morning. So uh, it is a blessing to be able to share with you guys. I want to start just with a little bit of a background for me. Most of you uh, know a little bit of uh, my history. I grew up in a single parent home and uh, my mom worked very, very hard to provide for us. That being said, they didn't always make the best choice. I say they because my dad was a part of the picture uh, early on, although he clearly was not later on in this process. But um, I'm very blessed to say that I grew up in a good, godly home. Uh, by the time I got to my teen years, I knew the things that I was supposed to do. A part of it was because uh, we ended up in a really good Bible-believing Wesleyan church. I didn't really know what a Wesleyan was at the time, but what I knew was that the pastor stood up there and preached every Sunday, and he taught holiness. He was very good at teaching holiness. I'm not going to say that I didn't get to have any fun at all, but for the most part, in a good holiness church, you're basically told all the things that you're not supposed to do. And it seemed like it was all the things that were fun that you weren't allowed to do. That being said, um, I learned what it was to be a child of God. I wish I could tell you that I always made the right choices. Uh, there were still poor choices that I made along the way. Sin entered in. I really did not make a decision for Christ until I was 17 years old, even though I had been in the church uh, for about 11 years, I think, prior to that. Uh, so I look back and I'm very, very grateful for what I learned. But there came a time when basically God got a hold of my heart and he said, some of the things that you are doing, they do not belong. Uh, they, they don't fit with one who is a child of God. I told you that uh, during the, the worship time this morning that there are times that we get caught up in our list of do's and don'ts. And by the way, that fit really well in the church that I grew up in. Uh, we get caught up in all the things that we have to do and somehow we think that that makes us more holy. The truth is, the only thing that makes us holy is the presence of God. When Moses stood before the burning bush, he had probably been in that region on many occasions before, but on this particular occasion, when God reveals himself to him and identifies who he is, who this voice is that's speaking to him from the bush, Moses is told to take off his shoes for the place where he is standing is holy ground. What made that ground holy? It was the presence of God. And in the same way, what makes us holy is not just us keeping a list of do's and don'ts, but rather it is the infilling of the Holy Spirit in our lives. When we are filled with the Holy Spirit, there is a holiness that ought to pour out of us. I'm not going to tell you that all of a sudden you're going to be perfect in every way, but I am going to tell you that God desires to make us pure. In fact, we're told that nothing impure will ever enter into the kingdom of heaven. So God desires us to leave the sin behind. I begin with that as sort of a, an addition to what I want to share with you today because I think at times we get caught up in these things that we have to do. The issue that I'm going to address today is an issue that 
the church has debated for many years. In fact, I have seen some really good God-fearing Christians who have debated whether or not we're supposed to be able to do this or whether there's a problem with it. So when we get to it this morning, I just want you to, to understand my goal is to be as fair as possible, but I also want you to know I'm going to I'm not saying that other people aren't holy, but I'm going to err on the side of being conservative as I bring this message to you today. First of all, let's uh, talk about Micah 6.8. Uh, it's a passage that I've used a lot over the past several uh, months, and as we've gone through it, there is a question that is posed to us, and it says, what does the Lord require of you? He answers the question with these words, and you guys have heard it over and over again. You could probably finish it for me. To act justly to love mercy, and to walk humbly with your God. To act justly, to love mercy, and to walk humbly with your God. I will tell you that as we look at those three answers that are given, there are times that perhaps we might need to lean a little bit more on one of the others. For example, we've talked about adultery being wrong. We know that to act justly means to do what is right, to do what pleases God. We live in a culture that at times, people try to justify the things that they do, but we know what the truth is. For example, an individual commits adultery and they justify in their mind why it's okay. Somehow it's not as offensive because, you know, I can explain away, well, you know what, my wife wasn't really the person that I thought she was going to be, so it's probably okay. And you know, if God didn't want me to be with this other individual, he wouldn't have put them in my life. And we begin to justify all this stuff, but deep down inside, we know that it's wrong. To act justly, that does not change based on the circumstance. Basically, doing right is always doing what's right. It's not one of those things you turn off and you turn on based on the situation. So to act justly is basically to do what you know you're supposed to do. To love mercy. It means that you consider others in your decision making. You're not just consumed with your own pleasure, but rather you care about the needs of others. In fact, this is the one, I'm already going to warn you, this is the one that I will finish with today because it is so important that we be aware of the needs of people around us. It is so easy for us to justify why something's okay for us to do and completely ignore the fact that there are other people that are affected by our decisions. We had an individual in our church in uh, Pennsylvania who out of selfishness, since I use the example of an affair, I'll use this. Out of selfishness, he decided that he wanted to be with another woman. He already was married, actually had four children. He was involved in the ministry of the church in incredible ways. He was at church every Sunday, heard the gospel message preached. He was actually our sound person, not to say that all sound people have this problem. Actually, I love the fact that Derek and Amy do this together up there. This individual was on our board of administration. He was my vice chairman. He was the assistant treasurer, and he was also involved in the youth ministry. You look and you say, if there's anybody who's spiritually mature, it's this guy. But the truth was, he was fighting a battle that he had been fighting for a long time, and nobody knew. Actually, when things finally happened, I was probably as heartbroken as almost anyone except for his wife and kids. You see, what Charlie didn't consider was the impact of his choice, not just on himself, 
but on the people around him. I remember sitting with his family when basically the kids are told that dad's never coming home again. The heartbrokenness that was present was overwhelming. Things that Charlie never considered. To love mercy means to look beyond yourself, but to look at the other people and how they will be affected by the decisions that you make. The third part of this is to walk humbly with your God. And it's all about letting God take the lead. I gave you guys an example of a dog that is supposedly being pulled on the leash, but instead the dog pulls you on the leash. And that dog stretches that chain as far as that dog can go because that dog wants to be in charge, wants to direct where you go. And if your dog is big enough, it will drag you if you let it. At times, I think perhaps we have been on the other end of the chain where God is saying, I want to go this way, but we're stretching that leash as hard as we can so that we can go the direction we want to go. That is not walking humbly with your God. Walking humbly with your God says, I will follow you wherever you lead me. I want to know what your word says so that when I decide which direction I go, it is in accordance with what my God wants for me, that I will follow his will and not my own. Too many of us have been stretching the leash, expecting the master to follow us rather than us choosing to follow the master. Well, another area that this verse can be applied is in regard to the use of alcohol. And that's what I want to talk with you guys a little bit about this morning. Again, there are good, respectable Christians with very different views on whether or not it's okay for us to drink alcohol, maybe in moderation, or maybe we should simply abstain completely from it. Now, I do want to just be completely clear on the front end. Uh, I have a very strong opinion on this. Um, 20. Uh, it was 1997. So 20 years ago this month, as a matter of fact, um, I made a commitment to the Wesleyan Church. I was ordained in 1997, and as a part of that ordination, I made a commitment that I would not drink any type of alcohol, except for medicinal purposes. We'll talk about that a little bit later. But I made a commitment that even if I even if I were a little bit soft on this, I was committed to never drink alcohol. Now, I'm going to tell you, I think it was the right decision whether I'm a pastor or not, but I've made that commitment, so none of you will ever see me drink alcohol. Uh, nobody has seen, actually, I was 17 the last time I drank alcohol. Uh, what a blessing to know that over half of my life, well over half of my life, I have been alcohol-free. Part of the reason why that's significant to me is I've seen many people who have been affected by alcohol. When we address this issue of alcohol, it's important for us to address it from a historical perspective, a societal perspective, a logical or practical perspective, and even a biblical perspective. And I want to look at all of that together today. It should be noted again that I've never been a heavy drinker. I told you I was 17 the last time I drank. I was a teenager. That means that it was illegal for me to do it in the first place. But as teenagers, you can typically find what you want to find. So basically, 
um, I made a decision the moment I received Christ that I would never drink again. I remember we were on a camping trip. I was actually at our youth camp, and uh, as this youth camp was wrapping up, I was leaving on the Friday of camp. We were supposed to go meet up with uh, some guys that basically I went to high school with, we drank, we partied with, we did all kinds of stuff, and um, we were going to go camping immediately after youth camp. And it was on the Shenandoah River. We would go canoeing and all kinds of fun stuff. Loved going there. And uh, we would spend usually four or five days just kind of hanging out and um, doing stupid things. And that was what teenage boys did back then. I don't know. They they may still do that. I don't know. Anyways, um, I remember getting there and realizing that we had prepared for this camping trip before I went to youth camp. And we had all kinds of beer. And we had one case of Pepsi's. And I got there and I looked around. I realized we had a problem. So I grabbed that case of Pepsi's and I sat on it. And I told everybody else that I had made a decision this past week that I am not going to drink because I am going to serve Christ. And I don't want anything to be a stumbling block. I remember one of the guys, his name was Rich. He looked at me and said, oh, the church thing. I've been through that. You'll get over it. I got to tell you, that's like telling me you can't do something. I was determined at that moment that I was not going to allow him to be right. And at that point, a decision was made in my mind that never again would I drink alcohol. And I will tell you, it was the best decision, one of the best decisions I've ever made. The great theologian and preacher, Billy Sunday, had this to say regarding the use of alcohol. He said, the saloon is a liar. Now, I know we don't have saloons, but you know what he's talking about. The saloon is a liar. It promises good cheer and sends sorrow. It promises prosperity and sends adversity. It promises happiness and sends misery. It is God's worst enemy and the devil's best friend. Well, that's a pretty direct statement on the use of alcohol. I will tell you, it's not the most direct statement that I read in preparation of this message. John Wesley wrote a letter that's entitled, uh, Wesley's Letter to the Drunkard. And in it, he declares that if you choose to allow alcohol to be a part of your life, he goes so far as to say you cannot call yourself a Christian. Now, I understand that that sounds very dogmatic, and I just told you earlier, there are some really good, godly people who have debated this issue of whether or not it's okay to occasionally drink a glass of wine or a beer with their dinner. But the truth is, i got to tell you, alcohol is an incredibly destructive substance. Over the years, I have watched the effects of alcohol in many ways. As a very young child, both of my parents were drinkers. My mom would eventually choose to walk away from that lifestyle, but I can still remember coming downstairs and seeing my my mom passed out on the couch because of alcohol. My father drank until really about a week or two before he died. I was wondering this week, what would my life be like today had my mom never put down that alcohol. One thing I would tell you is I probably wouldn't be standing here in front of you today. Had my mom not made the choice to leave that behind. Look, I understand the argument. 
We talk about moderation. We talk about abstinence. Which one is right for us? I'm going to tell you moderation is not an option for most people. In our culture today, moderation, we talk about moderation, but it is very, very rare that people practice moderation. People say, well, I can just drink a glass of wine and I'll be fine. But for most people who make that claim, a glass of wine is never enough. They end up drinking more. You guys know that I've been involved in addiction recovery ministry for years. And one of the things that has become so clear to me is, first of all, nobody ends up in addiction recovery ministry unless they have a problem with moderation. Because what happens is we are all in type of people. Because of that, I recommend that people choose complete abstinence. In addition, over the years, I've seen so many people whom I love who have been devastated by the impact of alcohol. Unfortunately, these individuals are not alone. Listen to some of these statistics. On average, 43,731 people die every year as a result of alcohol abuse in America. This primarily accounts for motor vehicle crashes, falls, and suicide. This doesn't include the average of 35,915 people who die each year from alcohol-induced physical diseases like cirrhosis, liver failure, stroke, and hypertension. In spite of these statistics, as I stated earlier, there's still great controversy within the Christian community. So how do we settle this issue? Let's begin with Scripture. It's always a great place to start. If you would, turn with me in your Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 12 through 20. This is a passage that deals with multiple issues, but it is easy to connect this passage to the use of alcohol. While you are turning, let me remind you of the verse that I read to you during our worship time earlier from Romans chapter 12, verse 2. Do not be conformed to this world but be transformed by the renewing of your mind that you may prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. Understand that just because the rest of the world says that it's okay to do something doesn't mean we have to do it. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 12 through 20 says this, I have the right to do anything, you say. Another way that you might word this is everything is permissible or everything is lawful. But it continues, but not everything is beneficial. I have the right to do anything, but I will not be mastered by anything. You say food for the stomach and the stomach for food, and God will destroy them both. The body, however, is not meant for sexual immorality, but for the Lord and the Lord for the body. By his power, God raised the Lord from the dead, and he will raise us also. Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ himself? Shall I then take the members of Christ and unite them with a prostitute? Never. Do you not know that he who unites himself with a prostitute is one with her in body? For it is said the two will become one flesh. But whoever is united with the Lord is one with him in spirit. 
Flee from sexual immorality. All other sins are a person, a person commits are outside the body. But whoever sins sexually sins against their own body. Do you not know that your bodies are temples of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have received from God? You are not your own. You were bought at a price. Therefore, honor God with your bodies. Now, I don't know if there's anything that's new in here in this passage. There's nothing that you probably haven't heard before. Clearly, this passage deals with quite a bit more than just the issue of alcohol, but rather it focuses a little bit on the issue of sexual promiscuity. But it clearly does address the things we put in our bodies. It even talks about our bodies and refers to our bodies in a great and important way as the temple of God. It is in this capacity that I want to break down this passage a little bit this morning. What's interesting to me is that Paul starts this passage with almost a a permission slip for us. He says everything is permissible. Everything is allowed. It's lawful. You can do these things. In other words, there's nothing to say that you can't do these things. This makes sense when you consider the fact that salvation is by faith, not by works. In other words, choosing not to drink for the rest of your life will make you sober, but that will not make you right with God. It will not get you into heaven. You can choose to never have an affair, and it will cause you to be faithful to your spouse, but that does not mean that you're going to get to heaven. You can choose to always tell the truth, and it will make you honest, but it does not mean you are going to get to heaven. Salvation is not by our works. It is by our faith in him, and the works pour out of that. So because we are saved, now we ought to do certain things. Another aspect of this is that the scriptures never clearly directs us to be completely abstinent. In fact, we see multiple examples of people using alcohol during biblical times. We see it in the infancy of humanity as Noah became drunk on wine. We even see Jesus turning water into wine later on. But Paul also addresses that not everything is beneficial. In other words, just because you can do it doesn't mean that you should do it. You may be allowed to do it, but is it really the best thing for you? Is it really the best thing for the body of Christ? Everything may be permissible, but doesn't mean that you should do everything. We live in a society that's looking for loopholes, looking for a way around certain laws. You say, well, the Bible doesn't really tell me that I shouldn't smoke crack cocaine. Okay, but do you really think you should do it? No, because the body is the temple of the Lord. So even though the term crack cocaine may not show up there, you know that you shouldn't be doing it. This is that act justly. You know it even if you try to excuse it. You know what is right. I've heard it stated that the wine used during biblical times was perhaps not fermented that it wasn't the same wine that we talk about today. It's a bit of a stretch, and the reason I say that, I just stated that Noah became drunk after the flood on unfermented wine. 
Boy, that's really hard to understand. Later on, Lot would become drunk to the point that his daughters would take advantage of him because they were afraid that there were no other men left after Sodom and Gomorrah had been destroyed and they wanted to make sure their family line could continue. Lot was drunk on unfermented wine, really? The reality is, much of the wine we see in Scripture was real. It was fermented just like what we see today. Later in the book of Proverbs, wine is referred to in several ways. These all come from Proverbs 20 and 23. It is referred to as a mocker and a deceiver that leads to violence, poverty, sorrow, immorality, insecurity, insensibility, and is even compared to as a poisonous snake. Okay, so it doesn't tell you that you absolutely should not drink any alcohol, but I'm going to tell you it doesn't take much to figure out that alcohol is a scourge on society and it's already something that was negative thousands of years ago. It's more likely that what we see in Scripture was fermented wine, but they tended to drink in moderation. Throughout much of the Middle Eastern culture, there were issues with drinkable water. Often the water was too bitter, so the people would choose to drink wine instead. With that in mind, drinking wine at a meal became somewhat commonplace. On the other hand, not everybody drank. In fact, abstinence from wine and other intoxicants is often presented as a great virtue in the scriptures. God honored Daniel for refusing the king's wine in Daniel chapter 1, verses 5 and 8, and again in verse 16, and then again in chapter 10, verse 3. John the Baptist's greatness in the eyes of God actually is somewhat directly linked to the fact that he never allowed wine to touch his lips or strong drink. In Ephesians 5.18, we are told to not be drunk with wine, but rather to be filled with the Spirit. Note the contrast that is there. Being drunk with wine is in total opposition with being filled with the Spirit. If we look at the most strictly literal translation of this verse, it reads, Be not entering into the act of being drunk with wine but be continually entering into the process of being filled with the Spirit. What that means is it's not a single act, but it is rather that process. Be continually seeking the Spirit of God. And the use of alcohol is not necessary to experience that. Instead, in times, it can stand in the way of it. We often hear the term alcohol and drugs this is actually a false distinction that is being made because alcohol is a drug. It is one of the most abused substances in the world. I have personally witnessed, and many of you have as well, how strong the addictive bondage of alcohol can be. I've known a number of people whose lives have been shattered by alcoholism, families that have been destroyed. I have wondered how much different their lives might have been if they had just said no to that very first drink. No social drinker ever thinks to themselves that they will become an alcoholic. Just like no one who casually experiences experiments with cocaine or heroin or other drugs 
thinks that they will become an addict. The old adage about an ounce of prevention certainly holds true here. It is far better to stop a problem before it starts. God does not want us to be in bondage to anything, whether it be alcohol, tobacco, cocaine, whatever it may be, maybe there's something completely different. As a teenager, I heard a simple but profound statement that has always stuck with me. No one ever became an alcoholic who didn't take the first drink. In my experience in doing personal evangelism, sharing the good news with others, I believe that this issue of alcohol is incredibly important. You see, everything I've talked about so far has dealt really with this issue of act justly. Do what's right. Do what you know you ought to do. Now, it has dealt a little bit with this walking humbly with your God, because the truth is, if God is directing us to avoid, to completely abstain from alcohol, we ought to walk humbly. We ought to not be saying, well, well, God, I know that your word suggests that I shouldn't be doing it, but I'm not really hurting anybody. So we kind of decide we're going to take the lead regardless of what God's word says. That's not walking humbly with your God. But the one that we have not addressed yet is incredibly important. We are to love mercy. I told you that I've worked a lot with those who are coming out of addiction. Can you imagine me standing before a Celebrate Recovery group, telling the people who are there who have clearly struggled with the idea of moderation and telling them that they should not drink any alcohol and then afterwards them seeing me walk out of the convenience store with a bottle of wine or a case of beer? Can you imagine that? I was actually playing basketball with our church in North Carolina. We had a basketball team. We were not very good. Uh, We had a lot of fun, though. We had a couple guys who were really good. And there were several of my teenagers. I was the youth pastor at the time that played on our adult team just because they were really good. And these are guys that I'm working with, and I'm trying to teach them that they need to live a life that honors God and that they can't compromise in areas like alcohol or uh, some other areas that I would typically focus on with them. One night, as we are leaving the basketball game, one of the guys, his name was Todd, uh, black guy, awesome guy, Todd, uh, Todd, actually it's funny, his last name was White, uh, Todd White and I uh, stopped by a local gas station just to, uh, it was actually a 7-Eleven, and we wanted uh, the Big Gulps. Now, I love a good Big Gulp. Um, I drink the vitamin water out of the one here all the time. So anyways, me and Todd stopped in there. And as we're standing in line, one of the other guys from our basketball team walks up to the counter and he's got a case of beer. And the moment he saw us, it looked as if he turned pale because he realized, I can't believe I'm standing here in front of a pastor and one of the kids with a case of beer. At that moment, the guy's name was Buck. That's not really a, know, it's a different name. Anyways, uh, his name is Buck. Buck said that was the last time he ever bought beer. Buck is a Wesleyan pastor today in North Carolina. And that is because he realized at that point that his life mattered. The choices he made had the potential to affect other people in the choices that they would make. Walking humbly with our God means, God, I'll do whatever you want, but loving mercy? This is saying, 
yeah, you know what, maybe I could get away with drinking a beer. But I would never want to be a stumbling block to somebody else. So I will do whatever it takes to make sure that that doesn't happen. I asked you the question at the beginning today, what would have happened if my mom had never chosen to walk away from alcohol? What would happen with my children if they looked at me and they saw me doing the things that I am encouraging you not to do? What if one day my kids struggled with alcohol because they learned it from me? I don't ever want to be that stumbling block to my kids. I know we live in a world that says it's okay to drink a little bit. I'm going to call you as a church, and you can choose to do with it what you want, but I'm calling you to walk in abstinence. Alcohol, actually, you guys all know it already. If you've drank it, it's gross. It doesn't even taste good. But it's of no value. I know there are medical reasons why people drink. I had a pastor in Colorado. He was... Uh, really struggling with this. He had a family history of heart disease. The doctor prescribed to him a drink, uh, to drink a glass of wine each night uh, with his meal. But he was so self-conscious about it, he didn't want to go and buy that bottle of wine because he was afraid somebody would see him do it. So one of the guys from the church said, well, I'll go do it for you. And once a week, the other guy's name was Kevin. Kevin would show up at his house with a, a bottle of wine just so he would have his wine. I always told our pastor, Kevin, that that was a little bit uh, wrong, (laughs) that he would get someone else to go to the liquor store, basically, to buy wine for him. But anyways, the point is this. You don't need it. Unless you absolutely are prescribed to do it, it serves no value. Tell you the truth, maybe you like it. Is it worth sacrificing the people you love? I don't think so. Let's pray. Father, as we come before you, we know that this is really all about you. It's all about the relationship that we have. And keeping this list of do's and don'ts doesn't dictate our salvation. But because of the fact that we are filled with your spirit, we know that you have high expectations for us. You desire to see a holy people that are pure, that are walking in righteousness, that have been made right with you because of your grace and because of obedience. Lord, I pray today that you would help us to be obedient in every area. Maybe today the struggle is not with alcohol, but maybe it's something else that seems as if we have justified it in our minds and it has become an acceptable thing to us. But Lord, today we ask, what is acceptable to you? Lord, I pray today that you would help us to walk in obedience, to walk justly, to act justly, to love mercy. Lord, I pray for those people around us that they would see in us those who choose to walk in righteousness. Let us us never be a stumbling block to those around us. I pray for my children. I pray that they would see in me one who is walking in righteousness, not one who compromises on areas that truly they don't matter. Lord, I pray that you would help me to be the man of God that I need to be. I pray that you would help them to be the children of God that you've called them and created them to be. Lord, I pray for each individual who's here. Give us victory. Set us free. 
We know that whom the Son sets free is free indeed. And today, Lord, we pray that you would set us free from these addictive behaviors that put us in bondage. We give you praise for what you're going to do. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.